If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to open it to Esther chapter 5. If you don't have one, it might help you to have one, and you can find a black ESV Bible in the seats in front of you, and you can turn to page 413 of that black Bible to find the book of Esther chapter 5. If you read through the Gospels, you will find very quickly that Jesus has some very difficult things to say to us as Christians. Sometimes those difficult things are just difficult to do. Jesus tells us that daily we need to take up our cross and follow him. This is what following Jesus looks like. It is daily giving of your life and leading it under his leadership. That is difficult for us, but it's not difficult to understand. It's difficult to apply. There are times, though, when Jesus says things that are just difficult to understand. Perhaps one of the best known and most difficult to understand things that he has to say is a parable in Luke 16 where he talks about the dishonest manager. This manager is going to be called to task, and he realizes right away that his master calling him in is a pretense for him getting canned. He knows he's going to get fired. And so what he does, he goes around to the clients of the master, and he says, listen, you owe 100 i tell you what, erase that, write down 50. You owe 100, take it, tell you what, scratch that out, write down 80. He says, I know that I'm too weak to dig for a living. I can't labor with my hands. And, and I know that I'm too proud to go out and beg. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make sure that all of these other people owe me a huge debt. And when I do that, when I get fired from my current job, then they will receive me into their homes. That was a bold move. Jesus says the master looked at him and commended him. It's crazy. He commends him. He says, you are very shrewd in what you've done. So many questions. Does Jesus approve of this? We would, we would think not. Are we supposed to act this way? No. Yes. What do you do with something like that? At the very least, the very least, it is to say that we are to be shrewd in how we act with wealth, with how we act with one another. We are to be clever. We are to be thinking about how our interactions are supposed to lead others to right conclusions, to right ends. Not underhanded schemes or plotting simply to get the things you want, but a call, I think, for us to put into practice our ingenuity and the skills that God has given us for use in his kingdom. To understand the situation you're in and to act in such a way as to make the most out of it. And today we get a wonderful application of this idea. Esther is indeed shrewd. She will show herself to be quite up to this great task that Mordecai has just laid at her feet. This is somewhat surprising because up to this point in the book of Esther, we know very little about Esther's character. Chapter 4 has begun to reveal it. Chapter 5 will crack the thing wide open. Previous to those two chapters, what we understood about her was that she obeyed Mordecai and she was really pretty. And that's about it. But what we're going to find is that beneath what was clearly a beautiful exterior, there is a cunning, smart, brave, and extremely capable woman. We also get a glimpse into the other side. We must be shrewd, but we must not be sinful. As Jesus would say, we are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And for those who seek to use shrewdness, who seek to use cunning, only to get to sinful ends, the destruction that awaits for them. 
inevitably God's justice will call upon you. Let us read this excellent fifth chapter of Esther and see how we are to be cunning and how we are not to be. Esther 5, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to half my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced above all the officials and all the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also, I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, fifty cubits high, be made. And in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. And go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. This is the word of our God. Before we begin to get in kind of to the meat of this passage, I want to remind us of where we left last week as we were kind of continuing the story. We talked last week about how Esther is the true hero here. There there could be some convincing arguments made for Mordecai to be the hero, but it's clear that Esther is the hero. And one of the best ways to see that Esther is the hero is that she, above everyone else, looks like a foreshadowing of what Christ will do. She is the one who is distanced from the pain and the suffering of her people, yet nevertheless puts herself in the place of that pain and suffering, puts herself in a place where she may have to give her life in order that her people would not die. This is a great foreshadowing of Jesus. And on the very first line that we have here, we have this beautiful depiction of how much she actually does foreshadow Jesus. She calls the people to a fast, three days, three nights, no water, no food, a very severe fast. And then chapter 5 begins, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. 
that can also be translated, on the third day, Esther put on royalty. That is a wonderful depiction of what Christ has done. We are, we are Baptists. We baptize people like every other Christian church. We just happen to do it right where everyone else does it wrong. Amen. And we think that baptism does a number of different things. At the very least, what baptism does is symbolize our union with Christ in going with him into death. And there's a real reason why water was picked, because you can't survive in water. Now, it's true, God could have said, we've got to bury you under six feet of earth, but this was actually an easier path to take, right? So you go underwater where you cannot live and you come back out of it. That is precisely, in a sense, the same kind of symbolism that we're getting here with Esther. For three days and for three nights, she's not eating or drinking. You can't survive like that. And on the third day, she puts on royalty. Just like Christ going to the death. And on the third day, putting on royalty, mortality, putting on immortality, as he is now immortal before God forever and ever, strengthened by the power of his resurrection. It is a wonderful depiction of how Esther looks like Jesus. But what's more, and although we can't press the details too terribly strongly, Esther looks a lot like Jesus in the fact that she is the only possible mediator and go-between between the king who holds the fate of the people in his hand and the people themselves. There is no one else. There is no one else that can work this magic. There is no one else who can stand in the king's court pleading for people, mediating for them, and still at the same time be sympathetic to the Jews as one of them. Jesus raised on high always mediates for us. It's a beautiful depiction of how Esther looks like Jesus. This is, in a nutshell, what the gospel is. Christ has come in our place and has taken our sin upon him so that we would not have to suffer the penalty of our own sin, but trusting in him, following him, faithfully declaring him to be God on high, that we might live forever. That is the gospel. And he saves us from all sin and all the penalty of sin, including death and destruction. I feel like Jude. I wanted to talk to you this morning about our common salvation, but we have other things we need to get to. Esther's plan. First, Esther's plan reveals her shrewdness. Esther's plan reveals her shrewdness. We can look at Esther's moves here as somewhat timid, like she's not really getting to it. This is beautiful section in the beginning of it where it's clear that she's standing before the king and the, the author is kind of drawing us out with every little detail that he's adding. She is standing before the king. The king can see her. She can see him. And then finally, he extends the scepter to her. There are a number of drawings of Persian kings with a scepter in one hand and a man with a huge axe standing behind him in the second. The idea is you either get one or you get the other. And there's this nice moment of tension where she's standing there and finally she wins favor and the scepter is put before her. And every time I read this, and I think for most of us, this is probably the case, we want to know why it is that when he extends the scepter to her and she is in the clear, the band-aid has been ripped off, the worst part is behind, why it is that Esther doesn't at that moment say, you know, Haman's trying to kill us all, you've got to stop this. But she doesn't. She delays. She, she holds on to what she's saying. Why not strike while the iron's hot? Why delay? And that twice. 
She doesn't just delay once. She delays twice. I don't think that it's because she's being timid. I think she's being incredibly savvy and shrewd with what she's doing. First, there's political savvy. We read this and we want to think, you know, if she would just ask, Ahasuerus would just give it to her. But that's not necessarily true. Ahasuerus has a lot going against rescinding, if he can, or even amending the the notice that's already gone out. The king, in a sense, signed the law that he was, quite frankly, ignorant of. The optics here are not very good. I I didn't actually know who we were going to genocide. I just kind of trusted Haman, right? But it's his ring that has signed off on this. It's his power, his word that is going out. The law is meant to be irreversible. More than that, it's going to cost him 10,000 talents of silver. While not quite half his kingdom, it's almost half of his tax revenue for the entire year. Not a small sum of money for a man who desperately needs it. And it would commit him to killing his own wife. He would have to admit that he went in on a plan to destroy the end of his, his wife's life. Now, there are plenty of kings who have done that before. And for most kings, there's not a huge amount of embarrassment in that. But he would have done it on accident, which makes him look really dumb. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why Ahasuerus might not just sign off on this. Esther, I think, knows this. Therefore, she throws not just one, but two feasts. She understands the gravity of the request she's making. It's not a request to be made flippantly just because she's gotten a little bit a favor from the king. She needs to show great honor to the king because she knows the difficulty of the request that she is going to put before him. She knows the gravity of it. Even verse 7 kind of implies this. So in verse 7, if you're reading in the ESV, you have Esther saying, my wish and my request is, and then there's a colon there. That colon implies that she is now going to fill in what that wish and that request is. Now, every time I do something like this, I feel bad. I want to tell you, translation is really, really difficult. It's not easy. So when I talk about how the ESV messes up translations, understand that I I couldn't do this, right? This is like me, Monday morning quarterbacking NFL quarterbacks. I couldn't do what they do. So understand, like, this is difficult. I'm not trying to really neg the the ESV or anything like that. But that's, that's not really a good translation of it. She starts to answer, and then she simply stops. We don't like that as translation. It's hard to get that translated. It really should be an ellipsis. She starts to say, well, my wish and my request, now, why don't you just come to a feast tomorrow? They're two separate things. She, she seems like she's going to answer, and then she just doesn't. It's clear that asking him to come to the feast tomorrow is not her wish and not her request. It's clear to everyone in here that that's the case. It's clear to her that that's the case. And what's more, it's clear to the king that that's not the case. He doesn't think that that's going to be her actual request. Her request is not just come to another feast. I invited you to this feast to ask you to another one. That's not her request. Rather, what she's doing is delaying. And again, that delay is very shrewd. She says, listen, I want to answer. By, by starting to answer, she shows, this matters to me. This is not a flippant request. Not only did I show up before you without being invited, but now I want to answer, but I can't do it yet. I need to pay more honor to you. 
I need to show more respect to you. I need to, to lavish a feast upon you because I know the gravity of the situation. Given the size of the request, she hasn't quite done enough for the king. It's politically savvy to delay. And what's more, there's a great deal of personal savvy in this. She knows the king. She knows what makes him go. She knows that he makes decisions when he's a little tipsy at the end of a wine course. Might as well, might as well wait. She knows that he is a man who has a great deal of pride. So feed the pride. Make a feast in his honor. Make a second feast in his honor to feed his pride. She realizes that he is a king who is prone to be led by those around him. Memucan in chapter 1 took advantage of this. Haman in chapter 3 took advantage of this. And now Esther in chapter 5 will take advantage of this king who desires to be strong, who desires to show himself as powerful and mighty, but is led by just about anyone with a piece of meat. She's savvy in how she's doing it. And not just savvy, but subtle. Subtle. She basically gets the king to sign off on her request before she even gives the request. Listen to how she words this in verse 8. She says, If, if I found favor in sight of the king. Now that's an automatic yes. He's already extended the scepter, and while he didn't say you found favor in my sight, it's clear that she has because the scepter has been extended. So that if is an automatic yes. You have received favor. Okay? So she's already priming the pump for yeses in this. The second thing she says, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request. Well, he's already asked you twice now. So the answer to that is likely yes. Okay? But the way she words it is, if you want to fulfill my request, come to the banquet. So if the man comes at all, he's already somewhat agreed in his heart, yes, I'll give it to you. What's more, by holding off a third time, she makes it seem like he's the one hounding her for the request. Well, you've asked me three times now. I guess you really want me to give you this request. Okay, I'll, I'll give it to you. What's even better than all of this, what's even better than all this, is she reverses everything that's going on here and turns it into a favor that she is now doing for him. Listen to the end of it. Let the king, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Oh, you want to know my request? I will grant you an audience tomorrow, and I will let you know what my request is. I know you really want to fulfill it. We can make that happen. I'll, I'll work hard for you. In the end, she is requesting that the king do her a gargantuan favor, but with deftness and subtlety and more than a little shrewdness, she turns the table while honoring the king and, frankly, displaying her knowledge of the situation. She gets him to ask for the request three times. She gets him to basically agree to the request before she even asks, and she makes it seem like she's doing him a favor. That's brilliant. That is a brilliant strategy to get him to do this very, very difficult thing. Far from simply being somebody who is beautiful, she is quite with it. And to think that it took her basically three days to come up with this. Now, 
Given the fact that you and all of the rest of you are highly unlikely to find yourself in this exact situation, we probably do need to talk about how exactly we are to apply this to our lives or what this means for us, because it's not just a good piece of storytelling. I'm not saying that we should be shrewd with the people in our lives and we should use their habits and the situations that we find ourselves in simply to get what we want out of it. That's clearly not going to be okay. And it's not going to be okay because we always focus on the ends. We quite often want to know, well, what do people want out of this? That is the most important thing. No matter what it is you're doing, what do you want out of it? When we talk about this in terms of the church, we talk about a vision. You know, if you're in business, you you oftentimes have a vision statement. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? In academic circles and in, in circles where people deal with ethics, they might talk about the telos of something. What is the purpose? What is the goal? What is the end of it? We can talk about how those ends always have to be good. The, the vision always has to be, have a final good to it. We might want people within the church to get involved in this ministry, so we have to paint the good of this ministry. We want to work hard to end abortion because we think that that is a good end. We think that it is a right end. We want people to come to know Christ because we want what is best for them. It is a good end. We understand this. Implicitly, we understand this. And then we say things like, well, how we get from point A to point B really does matter, right? So there have been Christians in the past who thought, hey, we want everybody to be Christian, so what we're going to do is we're going to threaten them with torture so that they will confess Christ. Okay, well, confessing Christ is a good end, but that's a, that's a bad means. You can't get there, right? So the means, as we would say, can never or the ends never justify the means. You've got to know the right situation, the right way to get from point A to point B. What we end up with is most of us think that moving people along that path is simply a matter of logic and argumentation. Just laying out our case, which is kind of frankly what I think most of us would have Esther do here if we were writing it. We would have her do PowerPoint. Here's point A. I'm a Jew. Point B, killing people's bad. Point C, I'd be dead right? C point A. Like we would just have her like lay it out very logically and think that's enough. If we can get people to think the right way and understand the right things and we're all set. And so apologetics, for instance, simply becomes a game of truth. We roll out all of our evidences and our logics and our reasonings and we are somewhat flummoxed when irrational sinners don't follow us to the cross. Well, no. They don't, because they're irrational. What is more bananas? Thinking that irrational people are going to act irrationally? Or being the rational person and expect irrational people to follow your logic where you want them to go? That was a good point. Thank you. We need to be sure to understand for the vast majority of people, logic and reasoning, while good, happen far downstream from almost any decision that they're going to make. People don't act because they've thought through a truth table. People act because they want to act. People believe because they want to believe. And then they apply logic and reasoning to justify that. Now, it's not that using logic and reason are wrong. 
But what you see Esther doing is moving him, moving his heart into the right direction, showing that she cares about him, showing that she cares about his respect, and she knows the difficulty of what she's asking him, showing that she wants him to move in that direction, that she is going to go out of her way to do the things that are right that will get him there. You can look at Esther and think somewhat crassly that she is just manipulating him, that she's just pulling the strings that she needs to pull in order to get what she wants. And even if that's a good thing, we might want to be more plain about it. But rather what we ought to see is that she does rightly understand that it's not just appealing to the head that Ahasuerus needs. Rather, she needs to persuade him, which takes a good deal more than just logic and reasoning. It takes caring about somebody. It takes moving them, being quiet with them, working with them. We need to learn, friends, how to leverage even sinful things, even sinful manna, even sinful money, even sinful power for the things of the kingdom of God. And I and you are likely very bad at that. I know I am. I'm extremely bad at that. Every time I've read this, I've just been, at the back of my head, there's a voice saying, why are you delaying? Just ask him. But that's oftentimes not the way to get what we want. James says that we should call for wisdom when we need it, and God will be freely giving it to us. We have many good things that we want as ends. Let us wisely think through how we can be shrewd in getting them. Esther's plan reveals her shrewdness. What do our plans reveal about us? Secondly, Haman's pride reveals his short-sightedness. Haman's pride reveals his short-sightedness. Esther shows her savvy, and as she does so, she can only do that because she actually pays attention to the world around her. She knows what the king is like. She knows what's going on politically in the scene. It's not just that she watches it, but that she takes it in. She catalogs it. She, she seems to have some sort of understanding of what is going on. We have a beautiful, then, portrayal of a contrast between her and Haman. Actually, this is going to go all the way through chapter 6. We have Esther's delay here in the beginning of chapter 5, which leads to Haman's distemper at the end of chapter 5, the king's dream then Esther's deliverance and Haman's destruction. All of these things fit well together. What we have at the beginning of this are two streams that don't seem to fit well together. It's not clear at all how Esther's banquet and then the postponement corresponds with the building of the gallows, which is where we end at the end of chapter 5, although by the end of chapter 6, these two things will come together in a way that will not be fun for Haman. Nevertheless, today the contrast was really between how Esther responds to the plight of her people, and how Haman responds to the slight of Mordecai. Esther, who is separated from the pain of her people, nevertheless feels it, suffers alongside of them, risks her own body for their good, and puts all of her cunning and her shrewdness into motion to alleviate that pain. Haman, on the other hand, doesn't see almost any of the world outside of him. All he does is feel his own pain, and that admits what he would go on to describe as great blessing. So to soothe his wounded pride, he puts all of his foolish and unsuitable plans into motion. Haman shows himself to be short-sighted. 
And he shows himself to be that because of his pride. First, pride makes Haman fragile. It makes him incredibly fragile. Mordecai stands and refuses to pay him homage. He restrains himself. He wants, clearly, to lash out the moment that he sees it. He's filled with rage and he's filled with anger, but he says, no, I can't do it, can't do it. Restrains himself, counts to four, says, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make plans. I've got to figure out some way to deal with this. So he, he calls his friends, calls his wife. And as sad as that is, that, that this man who has achieved so much is put off by this man, He's not calling them like we would normally call our friends. To have them say, nah, Haman, you're okay, man. Look at your beautiful family. Look at all of the wealth and the success that you have. Look, no one honors you more than than the king. Not only does the king raise you up, but you're second in command. Look at you, Haman. Apparently, Haman's not going to leave it to them. He calls them up, and in a childish way, tells them how wonderful his life is. It's just an absolutely amazing piece of writing. He, he collects his friends and says, come over here, so I'm having a bad day. I want you to come over so I can lecture you about how good my life is. You really have to wonder what's going through his friends and his wife's head as he recounts all of the good things that he has. Every single one of them. He says, I've got a lot of boys Esther is inviting me to hang out with the king and her. Everything's good. The king honors me above everybody else. I'm wealthy. I'm successful. But man, the guy just stood there. That guy you didn't know three weeks ago? Yeah, that guy. The guy who you you had to even learn his name? Uh Uh-huh, you didn't even know that he wasn't paying you any respect. Yeah, I know. It really bugs me. And nothing matters now. Mordecai is insignificant before God, and Mordecai is just as insignificant before Haman. Why does Haman care? Why does Haman care so much that he refuses to give him honor and homage? Why does it bother him and drive him so crazy? It's because he's proud. Simply because he's proud. Haman has brought these people together to get a recounting of how great his life is. And the whole point of it is just to bemoan the fact that a man whom he didn't even know and who he frankly doesn't care about won't pay him homage. And he actually turns to them and says, all of this is nothing. I'm sure that the wife was super happy to be involved in this conversation. I'm sure that the friendship, right? All my friends, meaningless. My wife, who cares? All my sons, worthless. If only this Mordecai guy would die. It is such a small slight. It is such a small thing. And this is what pride does to people. Pride makes them fragile. It seems like we're told that pride, oh, pride makes you strong. It's not pride that makes you strong. It's humility that makes you strong. Pride makes you brittle. It, it provides a little bubble here for him. It's so fragile. 
that one thing going wrong offsets all of the good in his life. No amount of disappointment can ever be absorbed by somebody who is prideful. No amount of criticism can ever be heard. Nothing that strikes at his ego and pride, no matter how insignificant, can possibly be tolerated. And so the softest stroke is going to cut him down. It is literally a feather that falls down on him. Okay, I'm not using the word literally correctly there, I get it. Figuratively, a feather falls down on his little pride and it pops the thing. Don't let your pride make you frail and fragile. Humility makes you strong. Humility gives you room to grow and to learn, to suffer and to sustain. Pride makes you rigid and brittle. And not only that, his fragility makes him act in ways that are incredibly self-defeating. Previously, he looked at Mordecai and he said, he's not worth wasting my time over. Back in chapter 3, even though he was going to make a plan to exterminate all the Jews. It says, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, which means it was beneath him. And no longer, for some reason, is it beneath him. All of a sudden, all of a sudden, he can't even wait for his own trap to come to fruition. He's got to end his life now. Pride in the end, friends, it, it will never lift you up and make you loom large. It's never increasing you in the sight of other people. Rather, it brings you down and it makes you small and petty, which is precisely what Haman is. Resist pride. Pride makes you and it makes Haman fragile, but it also makes Haman forget. Now, quite clearly, not in the true sense. Haman recounts all of the blessings that he has been given. He's been given blessings by the gods. He's been given blessings by the king. He's been given blessings by the queen. He's got blessings everywhere he turns, but he forgets that they are truly blessings. He knows that they're there, but he can only focus on the things that are wrong, and he forgets how good the things that are good truly are. He seems to, at one point in time, confess their worth and then throw them away because of this one small slight, and he forgets the goodness of it. Pride will always make you forget how good the good you have is, because there's always something better. Always something you deserve more. Always something you should have that you don't have. Always recognition that you should get that you don't get. There's always a slight because somebody else gets the things that you ought to have. God continually calls us to remember the great things he has done for us, not simply because that glorifies him. Although that is true. It does indeed glorify him. But that's not all. God does this not just because we need to have our eyes referenced to God, but because... It is exceedingly good for us to remember that God has indeed given us many, many good things. It is to make us thankful, full of remembrance, and to keep us from the despair that will inevitably come from, proud, from pride. Third, pride makes Haman foolish. It makes him frail, it makes him, makes him forget, and it makes him foolish. In the end, the solution posed by his wife Zeresh and his friends, they make large gallows. 50 cubits is roughly 75 feet high. That does seem like overkill, which is kind of what it's meant to do. So the gallows here do not kill people. So if you go back to chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, when Mordecai discovered the plot in the king's life, 
when those men were hanged on the gallows, they weren't hanged on the gallows to kill them, likely. They were hanged on the gallows to basically disrespect them, to desecrate their bodies. They left them out because this was the greatest way to show. If you don't show respect for their body, you show complete disregard for their whole lives. They are worthless in the full. That's what the point of these gallows are. And the reason why you make them so high is so that everyone can see how disrespected you are. Everyone can see how desecrated your body is and how worthless your life is. So he makes gallows so high that they scream to be symbolic of his pride, of what he thinks of himself. He is so great. He is so mighty, so powerful, so that everyone can see what you ought to do to Haman. You ought to respect him so that everyone can know the greatness of Haman. An absolute foolish thing to do. Not to give away the whole end of the story, but Haman is not going to find Mordecai on those gallows. He will find himself there. He's building his own death. It is utterly foolish. Now, you might say, the Bible talks like this, where people like Haman get what's coming to them. And where in the next book over, the book of Job, Job suffers for a little bit, but eventually Job gets the good that's coming to him. These are nice, happy stories where the bad people are punished, the good people are rewarded, and the Bible talks like this all the time. But this, you might say, is not the way the real world works. Bad people don't always get what's coming to them. Good people don't always get the good that's coming to them. Many bad people flourish. Many good people suffer. Yes, that is true. But understand there's a reason why scriptures have stories like this work out the way they do. Why Job, frankly, must end the way that it ends. And why Esther, quite obviously, must end the way that it ends. The Bible allows us, especially in the Old Testament, to see pictures of a reality that is coming played out in the physical world of the Old Testament. While it's leading us to Christ and to the reality, it's also telling us the true reality that he is going to usher in. So the Exodus is a picture of our salvation. Going through this, the, sea, the Red Sea is, is a picture of our baptism. Following around the desert is a picture of our wandering in the world here. Entering into the promised land is our entering into heaven. These things are pictures for us so that we can understand where we are and what our salvation is to look like. That we are to dwell in the temple of God with him in his presence forever and ever and ever. The Bible recognizes this and therefore it has stories like this because the inevitable end of our spiritual reality is that the kingdom of God will triumph over all of its enemies. They will all be destroyed. The gates of the kingdom will never be closed, not because not because no one is willing to fight it, but because there are no enemies left. No one's left. Jesus has vanquished them all. So how else could we possibly have the Bible end these kinds of stories? But at the same time, the Bible is not, is not something that does not prepare us for the fact that the wicked win. Psalm 73, the psalmist pours out his heart before God saying, I saw the wicked winning. I saw them getting away with it. And I thought, why can't I? The book of Ecclesiastes 
talks to us about how the good don't always get what's coming to them and how the wicked don't always get what's coming to them. The death comes for them all. Revelation, quite frankly, speaks of the ease of the wicked on the earth. Yet we know in the end, all of their foolishness will be repaid to them. This is why the Psalms say, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They don't think that there's a God, so they can do all the foolish things they want to. They can do all the wickedness that they want to because they don't think that there's justice. They look around and they say, where is justice coming from? Who's going to hold me accountable? There's no one there. The reason why scripture calls them fool is because there is someone there. God will hold them accountable. Haman thinks he's got free reign. He's short-sighted. He cannot, as we would say, see past the end of his nose. The whole world revolves around him. He has no way of apprehending what is coming to him and the destruction that is coming to him. His pride refuses him to see nothing but himself. He is so short-sighted, he cannot see that those gallows are meant for him. He is foolish. And thus will find the wrath of God upon him. Friend, pride leads you here. Don't be a fool like Haman. He couldn't, he couldn't repent. He tried, as we will see, to beg Esther. But he had no place for repentance. There was no way to turn back the clock. Friend, today is a day of salvation. The gospel is here for you today. You are not promised the next 10 minutes. You're not promised the next hour. You're not promised the next day. And you're not promised time to think about it, to dwell on it, to come back next week and maybe then figure out what you're going to do. The gospel is here today. And you do not know when God will call for your soul. Repent before it's too late. Let us learn well this truth. If you have sin in your heart, if you have sin in your life, you may be able to hide it from me. You may be able to hide it from the people in your pew. You can hide it from the people in your lives. You can hide it from everybody. You cannot hide it from God. He will know and he will judge. For those who already know the Lord, let us do all that is in our power using all of the gifts that God has given us, including reasoning and logic. Yes, we need to use those. But also the full repertoire of personal skills that God has given us so that we can pull not just on the heads of sinners, not just on the minds of sinners, but on their hearts as well to show the glory of Christ in the world to them, to show the glory of one who has died for them and risen for their justification to show them that there is no more penalty for those who are in Jesus Christ, to weep for them and their lostness, not to gloat over them and their fallenness, not to pray for wickedness to come upon them, but begging them to come to an understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ, weeping over them and over one another that we might see that repentance is given to foolish and prideful hearts, ours and theirs. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you might give us faith and repentance, and that through the work of Christ, make us yours. We pray that you would grant us wisdom as we move through this world. Allow us to use those things that you've given to us, the talents, the gifts that you have given to us, that we might glorify your name 
We pray that you would do this for the great name of your Son, the very name by which we are called, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is in that wonderful name that we pray these things. Amen.